I think our feeling is, you know, particularly coming back to the equity side, is that there's tremendous advantages of being a stock picker and a and a fund picker. And uh, the analogy I'd use here is be, being both a, a chef and a restaurant critic. I mean, if you were a restaurant critic, but you'd never ever been into a kitchen, I don't think you'd really have an idea of how the dish was put together. And if you're a chef and you go to other great restaurants, you're going to get a lot of ideas. So we we get ideas from our third party managers and how to construct a portfolio, what kind of stocks to to look at. But the you know fundamental work that we do on stocks ourselves gives us a much better idea when we're looking at somebody else's fund. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Today I'm joined by Hugo Capel Cure from Rothschild & Co. in London in the United Kingdom. Hugo is Managing Director and Co-Head of the Investment Team at Rothschilds. Hugo, great to have you on today. How is everything on your side? Well, the sun is shining, Alan, and uh, it's it's all good. Great stuff. It's a sunny day in Dublin here as well, so we've been blessed with some beautiful uh, spring sunshine in the last few days. Um, Hugo, I know you're uh, co-head of the investment team at Rothschild, so maybe just to frame the discussion today, could you give us a sense on the types of portfolios you run for your clients at Rothschild's in terms of kind of size of assets and the investment objectives, any constraints, etc.? Yes, so we look after essentially private clients, but also some smaller institutions and endowments and family offices and things like that. So very much of the ultra high net worth uh, end of the spectrum. We manage as a team about 15 billion pounds, so sort of high teens, billion pounds. And um, our mandate essentially for our clients is to do for them what the Rothschild family have achieved over generations, to to stay wealthy in real terms. And it sounds very simple, but uh, if inflation rises, which it is at the moment, it becomes a lot trickier. Interesting. And obviously, you've been in the markets going back over a number of decades now. How did you end up as a portfolio manager and a co-head of investments? What's been your investment uh, uh, journey? Yes, well, I I wasn't one of those strange creatures who, age five, decided that they wanted to be an investment manager and read the financial papers. So uh, you'll be relieved to hear that, I think. And And I really stumbled into it. I mean, I was looking for a job and... Um, I was offered a, a position at uh, Coots, and I know you had uh, Alan Higgins on your podcast uh, yes. a few a few uh, weeks ago, uh, so it was interesting hearing how they're getting on. And um, I found it really interesting, and uh, 30 years later, I'm still at it. 
Very good. So you haven't quite figured it all out yet, but still learning, I, I guess. No, no, I, I now know I know a lot, lot less than I thought I knew 25 years ago. Great. And I, I know along the way you, so obviously you were a portfolio manager at Coots and uh, you were at, at Deutsche Bank for a number of years um, with more of an equity focus. Is that right? Absolutely. So in my very first job uh, back in uh, 1994, I was actually managing more fixed income portfolios. And I'm sure you'll remember, Alan, it was a, it was a pretty disastrous Tough year for fixed income. <laughs> yes. yeah. So yeah. I, I learned a couple of things there. And then I moved into a sort of fund research role. And then uh, when I moved across to, uh, to a Deutsche Bank, it was uh, more of an equity research role. I spent seven years sitting with the European team within Deutsche Asset Management. Um, and so it's been a variety of different things over the years, yes. Great. Um, so obviously, you know, you touched at the outset on that ob objective, uh, a portfolio or investment objective of, of maintaining wealth for clients, which, you know, sounds easy. But as you rightly say, we're living in interesting times from an investment perspective. We've got rising inflation um, this year for you know, I guess for the first time, well, in the last couple of years, for the first time in of in a number of years that we've had significant inflation. How has that um, been a challenge for the portfolios or have you been making particular investments to um, insulate portfolios uh, from, from rising inflation? I feel this is a is a leading question, Alan, because I, I know where it's leading. And the answer is firstly, we have to think about inflation because we're talking about preserving the real value of our clients' portfolios. Mm. We, ha we can't hide behind a benchmark. We have to think about inflation. And the answer is when equity markets are going up and inflation is non-existent, it's easy, easy keeping clients mm. wealthy in real terms. When inflation's picking up and the other asset classes are coming under stress, it becomes much, much harder. So we've been, we've been doing a number of things. And one of the things, and I know it's very dear, to your heart uh, is is thinking about how we can find other ways of, of uh, protecting its inflation, and one of those things is the trend followers or the CTAs. Um, right. The way the way we view it, um, the way I view it, is that inflation itself is a trend. It's a trend in prices rising day after day, and mm. you know when we look at the genesis of the recent bout of inflation, a lot of it's coming from things like commodity prices rising. Yes. So certainly a key strand uh, in our inflation thinking is around alternative assets such as managed futures or trend followers or CTAs. There seems to be lots of different words for the same thing. Um, another strand is, is the inflation-linked bond markets and derivatives of that, which are very interesting. Uh, and another thing is sort of thinking really about going back to stocks, about the kind of companies that are going to be able to pass prices through and be an inflation hedge. But, uh, you know, we aren't deluding ourselves that uh, rampant inflation is great for stock, for stock markets because history relates that it isn't. Right. So more of a case that up to a certain level, a certain amount of inflation can be good for stocks, but, but not too much. Is that it? Yes. I mean... 1970s, I suppose, is the obvious case study that everybody looks at. If inflation really gallops away, then, you know, it's just sort of basic financial mathematics. If you, you know, if you start imputing much higher discount rates, then the present value of any form of cash flow or earnings or dividends starts coming down. Yes. And you mentioned, you know, having all of the different strands, CGAs, inflation linked bonds, um, and the particular types of equities you're looking at. I guess, is are, are some of those decisions tactical or are all of those kinds of asset things you would you would kind of allocate to it as a from a strategic asset allocation perspective as well <laughs> well the word tactical makes me laugh because i've <laughs> sat on investment committees that attempted to do tactical and uh and generally got it wrong over the years so uh we are we are very much in the camp of and i think it was howard marks oak tree so there are two types of investors there are no everything investors and no and no nothing investors and we are no no nothing investors we can't predict the future mm. um but we can certainly think about different kinds of scenarios and we can prepare a portfolio for it so we, we, we've been talking about inflation for many many years we, we've been predicting the demise of conventional bonds for many years um and, um, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, better late than never, but it's, it's finally seems to be that there's some dynamics which are shifting in the markets. So, yes, I suppose we made a tactical de decision a decade ago to buy some trend followers <laughs> and now they're doing well. 
Very good. Um, and I mean, in terms of you, you talk about wealth preservation for kind of uh, high net worth clients. So is it fair to say that your time horizon and the time horizon for the portfolios is is kind of fairly long term? Um, and, you know, the word long term is bandied about a lot in the markets. For some people, it's a year. For other people, it's 100 years. You know, what, you know if I say long term to you, what would you understand by that? Well, I think for, for a lot of our clients, it's a sort of generational concept. It's handling okay. down assets, endowments, charitable funds, generation after generation. Um, so some, some of our clients have tremendously long uh, horizons. Other ones tell us that they have a long horizon, but it's sort of doled out to us a quarter at a time. Yes, no, absolutely. So, I mean, is that, you, you touched on, you know, uh, kind of gave a sense of the types of strategies um, you're allocating to. Would you say, is there an investment philosophy that sums up your approach uh, at all? Some people, you know, very much, you know, would say uh, oh, we're value investors or we're growth investors or we're, we're a certain type. If you were kind of describing your philosophy to a client or a prospect, what would you say about the philosophy of how you run money um, in the portfolios? You can have a highly rated stock, which is, you know, which has tremendous prospects in terms of growth and is generating tremendous cash flows, and that can be cheap. Likewise, you know, you can have a stock that which looks cheap and just gets cheaper and cheaper over time. So we wouldn't say that we're either value or growth, but we're certainly, when it comes to uh, things like equity investments and um, other form of what what we classify as return assets, we are fundamentally driven investors. We're looking for great businesses. And really, I mean, essentially, what we're trying to do for our clients, and you know, many of our clients are entrepreneurs who built up their own businesses and, and then sold them, is to take cash that's come out of what by definition is a fantastic business and put it into other great, great businesses. And then, you know, that is the long-term vision. That is how we're going to compound over, over years and decades. And then all the other things I've been talking about, such as the trend followers, I mean, that is a way of getting from A to B. It's a way of mitigating risk, protecting against major declines in equity markets. Uh, you know, the, the crashes that sort of on a statistical basis should happen every 10,000 years, but actually happen every 10 years. Um, and um, it's 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 that long term vision. So it's not trying to guess where the market's going to be in twelve in twelve months time, as much as anything else, because we don't we don't have the smallest idea. Interesting. So it sounds very much um, an approach that was similar to we had Elizabeth Burton from. Uh, Hawaii on here a few weeks ago talking about, you know, maybe there's not no need for all of these different buckets. You have kind of growth assets and then you have diversifying strategies. And it sounds like that approach is similar to your own. Well, in, in extremis, uh, uh, Chris, Chris Cole of Artemis, who I'm sure has been on the top traders unplugged, um, yeah. very yeah, interesting yeah. thinker based in uh, based in Austin, Texas, said that there are there are only two types of investments. There's long volatility and short vol volatility, and generally, most investors are ninety five percent short and only five percent long. So we think about you know finding some great investments, finding some appropriate hedges, and I suppose a lot of this, in terms of thinking about asset classes, just comes back to my own experience. So, as you mentioned earlier, I was at Deutsche Bank for for a number of years. I ended up for the last few years being on the uh, investment committee for the wealth management uh, division uh, globally of a of, of a Deutsche Bank. There, we had uh, what looked like tremendously diversified portfolios. We had we had every asset class you could possibly imagine. We had you know equities and fixed income and structured products and hedge funds and real estate, commodities, you name it. We we had a not only an asset class but we had a whole team of people behind that. And then within the equities, I mean, I was in charge of the equities. We had all these different levers we could pull. We you know, you could go into emerging markets or developed markets or growth or tech or other kinds of uh, thematic investments. Within the fixed income side, again, there was a whole team. And at that time, it was you know, your conventional fi fixed income, but also there were lots of exciting new things, toys to play with, such as you know, CDOs and ABS and MBS yes, and yeah. so on and so forth, lots of alphabet soups. And the lesson that we learned from that is that we, we had a we had a pie chart that looked tremendously diversified. I mean, what could possibly 
go wrong with that level of diversification. But essentially, we were just replicating the same risk uh, across the whole portfolio. You know, mm. There was market risk in the equities and there was market risk in the fixed income. I mean, everybody knows the CDOs blew up, but also things like high yield bonds uh, blew up. Um, the hedge funds had a lot of underlying equity risk in it. The, the commodities correlated with equities and the structured products were essentially short vol. So we didn't actually have a beautifully diversified pie chart. We had, uh, we had lots of cabins, but it turned out that they were all on the same ship. So right. when the ship hit the iceberg, it went down. So, so we've learned, I mean, the, the, the lesson that me and my, and my co-managers and you know, they all came from other investment banks and had sort of similar experiences. The, the lesson that we've learned is that if something's going to be a diversifier, it can't behave the same way as, as an equity. You know, it has to be things that are either generate the returns differently to equities. And so I mentioned the trend followers. So, I mean, there are times when trend followers can be long equities and correlated, but, but generally, as you very well know, Alan, the, the correlation yep. is pretty low. Or it's things which are explicitly uh, long vol volatility hedges against a major equity decline. Um, or it's just cash or proxy cash. Yeah. Interesting. We we had um, Sebastian Page was a, a previous guest on this podcast, and he talked about exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I think he'd, he'd written a paper called uh, The Myth of Diversification, which is all about, you know, having uh, lots of cabins, uh, but, but, but they may all be, as you say, very, very much all on the same ship. Yeah. So you got to, when you're looking for your cabins, keep an eye on, are they on the same ship or different ships? You actually sort of have to be on the ship to experience it firsthand and uh, i think it's mark twain he said that, you know experience is what you get when you don't get what you want and um yeah i mean it's it, it is remarkable and i i don't think many investors really realize just how correlated their portfolios are yeah no i think that's it i mean as you say the the challenge is we can live in kind of stable times for for long periods and in those periods i guess these assets will behave slightly differently and give the illusion of uh, diversification, as you say. But then it's in times of stress, you you, you move into a, basically a different distribution and things just behave very differently. Yeah, well, I mean, the joke in our team is, uh, you know, if, if the easiest way of checking whether something is very fragile is by seeing if it has a high sharp. If it has a high sharp, it's probably going to blow up. <laughs> Interesting, yes. And I, and I guess normally you have a lot of people coming into you highlighting what a great uh, sharp ratio their strategy has, thinking that that's going to make it more attractive. Yeah, I mean, short, short. I mean, going short, the VIX index was classically a very high sharp ratio strategy, but it was picking up nickels yes. in front of the bulldozer. You know, Absolutely. All it, all, yeah. all it takes is one spike. And I think, is it 2017? I'm trying to remember the, the, the exact date in, in, in February where you... 2018. It was 2018. Yes. You get a bit of a rumpus yeah. and the whole thing just blows up. Yeah. So it sounds like that experience at Deutsche Bank with that kind of seemingly diversified portfolio, but ultimately not very diversified portfolio, was a very informative experience for you. And, and maybe, I'm guessing, maybe the first step on, on the path to looking at diversifying strategies more closely, things like managed futures and trend following. Um, you know, obviously, one of the things that I find, you know, dealing with clients, often people who have that kind of equity and fixed income background and are used to, you know, looking at assets from a pure valuation basis, struggle with this idea of just allocating to a strategy that just follows the price. I mean, what did you find that uh, challenging making that kind of transition from being, you know, valuation focused to looking at more uh, trading oriented strategies? Yes. So valuation focused, more sort of correlation focused, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, it's, it has been challenging. And, you know, some of these strategies, famously, you have long periods in the desert where they either don't perform or they perform poorly, and then everybody questions your judgment. But it's the performance that's delivered during difficult times in market is gold dust. So, I mean, we have a strong conviction that your traditional 60-40 equity bond portfolio is essentially a disaster zone. And, you know, particularly if we have a regime of rising inflation, you could easily see both the equities and the bonds coming under pressure. 
So for us, the holy grail is finding compelling diversification for equities, but without bleed. I mean, if we can find negative correlations, but without bleed, or, or even a positive return, then, then that's gold dust. And, um, you know, you touched on that, that kind of negative, well, low correlation. It can be negative between trend following and managed futures and equities. Um, when you're looking at that as, as an allocation within the uh, portfolio, are you thinking of it as a just purely as a diversifier or as a return uh, contributor as well? Yes, that's a really good, good, good question. So we have a number of different diversifying strategies, and we sort of really map them mentally on a sort of on a on a graph where one axis is sort of diversification or sort of anti-correlation, and the other axis is sort of expected return or if it's negative, the amount of, that it will cost to a carrier, so the amount of bleed, and generally everything sort of maps on that on that line. So. Something like a like a trend follower is something that we think fundamentally is a positive return strategy over time, albeit lumpy, but it's something where that correlation tends to be variable over time. Um, whereas something at the very other end of the spectrum, like a like a like a put option, you know, the, the is clearly anti-correlated. Something like a put, a put option on the S and P, um, but there's a very high cost of carry, uh, particularly if your starting point is high is high vol. And then everything else sort of maps in between. So, you know, our ideas, because we can't predict the future, unfortunately, um, and because we, we don't know what the path is going to look like, and there are many different paths, we try to map everything along that, along that uh, axis. Okay, so if you're thinking about, you know, obviously, as you say, you're looking at diversifying strategies, and you can look at, say, pure trend, or you could look at, you know, other strategies within managed futures, like short-term trading or long volatility or volatility trading, or maybe more conventional uh, discretionary global macro or systematic global macro. So there are a number of different uh, flavors of trading strategies there that could potentially be be one up for consideration in your portfolios. How, I mean, how do you think about differentiating or, or you know, obviously you map it onto the thing uh, the, the the framework that, that you um, you've outlined but um, you know is that a challenge to say you know measure or assess a macro manager who might give that characteristic versus a, a quant uh, trend follower who, who might give a similar characteristic well Alan you can see that I'm smiling <laughs> um, <laughs> I can <laughs> We've sort of tried everything over the years, and the the one area where we've struggled is in the discretionary macro side. I mean, these are these are clever everyday strategies, and where we struggled is that we we we've never known whether the manager is going to be there. He's going to show up at the time that you have a major crisis. You know, perhaps he'll be you know in his villa in the south of France, or perhaps he'll be on a golf course, but, but you never know if the, if the discretionary macro manager is going, is going to be there. So we do have a preference for more systematic uh, strategies. And again, it's, it's having seen how everything sort of has tended to play out in different market environments is, is why we want to spread. So I talked about the path dependency, and there's a big difference between you know, a crash such as the October 1987 crash that happened in a very, very short uh, time time frame, or something like the global financial crisis, which happened over a number of months. And, you know, if you own a put option the day of a crash, it's great. You get a massive spike in vol, you get a big shift in the delta, and you win on both axes, and you get a very geometric response. Um, you know, if you're in a put option over a long slump and volatility is drifting higher, maybe it expires after the money, maybe you don't want to buy another put because it's too expensive at a higher level of vol. And on the other side, if it's something like a trend follower, um, you know, perhaps your trend follower's long equity is the day of the crash. And that's not very helpful. But in, in a big slump, I mean, that slump is a trend and they can go short, short equities over that period. So we do think about the, the different paths that markets can uh, take and and try to cover the uh, basis, really. So by having a number of different uh, types of these strategies, is that it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you, I mean, you mentioned those kind of short, sharp equity market declines as opposed to the more prolonged ones. And 
and you also referenced uh, you know earlier tough times uh, for for trend following and i think you know i think in, if you go back to the last decade we probably had both you know we had a period of tough performance for for trend and also there were a number of kind of short sharp declines in equities but they tended to be short lived um T- tell us about the experience of being allocated to trend during that uh, period. You know, was it a t- difficult strategy to hold or were you thinking, OK, we should be adding more of that kind of l- pure long vol, long put uh, type strategy? Or, or do you just uh, take a very long term perspective and, and um, continue to hold both types of strategies? I know a lot of um, investors get frustrated owning the trend followers. I mean, anything which spends more time losing than it does gaining is a difficult strategy to own. And there are long periods where you get choppy sideways moves in markets and that's horrible for a trend follower and 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 they and they don't add anything. I think what 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 gave us the the reassurance and the faith to own the trend followers is, you know, our understanding that they're capturing some sort of facets of markets which I think are just endogenous to markets and actually broader than that as a sort of just a, a function of human behavior and psychology. I mean, we all want to own things that are going up and sell things that are, that are going down. And, you know, for me, the, the best uh, example of all of that is the, is the cryptocurrencies, uh, which are sort of have to be the purest manifestation of momentum that you can possibly have. And, you know, it's amazing how you know, as they grind higher and higher and higher, everybody, you know, who may be thinking, no, I don't want to buy them. If they carry on going up, eventually everybody wants to buy them. So you can you can see in a sort of nutshell how that works. So we always felt that the underlying premise for a trend follower, you know, there are various different academic studies and there are various different, high, various different ideas about why they might work. But we understood that there's a behavioral component and that's hardwired to a human behavior. And uh, there was a there was a paper um, that we saw that was actually done, I think, by some academics at the University of Cork, um, showing that um, trends across financial markets have been have been exhibited in pretty much every asset class over the last two uh, 200 years. So where they've been able to piece together the data of commodities or the precursors of stock markets, anything like that, and the and the bond markets, you see exactly the 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 uh, the, the same things. So they so they seem to be a part of human life, and so that's why we didn't really give up because we knew that sooner or later there there'd, there'd be some trends. We just didn't know when. Yes. Well, it's refreshing to hear you saying that. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's uh, something I, I would have said myself over time. But it's it, uh, you know, you sitting here now in a period where where these strategies have been doing well, it sounds easy. But the reality is, you know, two or three years can be quite a long time if you have underperformance uh, for 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 that level. So. It, it's not without a challenge when a strategy underperforms. In the same way, I guess, if you look at growth versus value, I know you may not like that differentiation, but it's a common differentiation in the markets and values underperform for, for a long time. Um, you know, with, with any of those challenges, the, the challenge of staying invested, is that, you know, a, a tricky conversation that you have with clients or do they obviously rely on you and your team for your expertise to, to guide them. But do you find you have to spend a lot of time defending a, a strategy if it's in, in, a, in a drawdown or a period of underperformance? I th- yes, I mean, you do. And, you know, people want to know why something isn't working. And it's entirely understandable that they ask the, the question. And it's really just, it's our job to, to explain why these different components have their place in the portfolio, explain that there will always be something underperforming in the portfolio at any one time. I mean, I remember a conversation I had with a, a colleague many, many, many years ago at, at, when, I was at, when I was at Deutsche Bank, and he was about the put option. He said, I love the portfolio, but there's this thing in the portfolio. The markets are doing great, and this thing's horrible. You know, it's going, it's going down every day. It's, t- it's so volatile as well. It's terrible. And, you know, I, I try to explain to them that this is the insurance in the portfolio. I mean, much in the way that if you're driving very happily along a motorway, the value of your car insurance is also falling. But, you know, that's not, that's not the reason why you own it in the first place. 
So yes, we have to have those conversations, and I think it's it's only fair. And I think um, a key part of our job as uh, investors is is to communicate and to explain what we're doing, and um, to give our clients the reassurance that you know we aren't crazy and we thought these things through. Uh, and um, you know, for us, the portfolio is a jigsaw, and every piece has an important part to to replay. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, I think in your portfolios, you select individual stocks, um, as well as doing asset allocation, uh, as well as doing, you know, manager selection, I guess. Uh, so you've got kind of distinct uh, skills that are required in a role, you know, stock selection, uh, yeah, asset allocation and manager selection being the three, I guess, uh, from, a, from a pure investment perspective. Do you think it, they're, they're all kind of part of the same discipline or do you find one easier or one more challenging or, or what do you, what's your perspective on, on those three disciplines? Yeah, well, we have, uh, we have various views on this. And the first thing is that we are low pride investors. We are magpie investors. Okay. We, we, we will go for whatever we think is shiny and it's going to make good, good returns for our clients or, or be a, a sensible hedge. So if it's, if it's, if it's a direct investment, we'll buy a direct investment. If it's, if it's a third party fund, because somebody's better at that particular, you know, if it's equities, if they're better at investing in Southeast Asia than we are, or, you know, if it's a, some, something like a trend follower, which is a very, very a technical and quantitative uh, discipline, um, we will go with that. And I think our feeling is, you know, particularly coming back to the equity side, is that there's tremendous advantages of being a stock picker and a and a fund picker, and uh, the analogy I'd use here is be being both a, a chef and a restaurant critic. I mean, if you were a restaurant critic but you'd never ever been into a kitchen, I don't think you'd really have an idea of how the dish was put together. And if you're a chef and you go to other great restaurants, you're going to get a lot of ideas. So. We, we get ideas from our third party managers and how to construct a portfolio, what kind of stocks to, to look at. But the, you know, fundamental work that we do on stocks ourselves gives us a much better idea when we're looking at somebody else's fund. It's just the way it's panned out. And a lot of, uh, I know a lot of our peers either just buy stocks directly or just buy funds. And some consultants think it's odd that we do both things. But for us, it makes perfect sense. Interesting, and then that that bit about then being the being the chef, I guess, uh, reviewing the restaurants. Uh, you know, obviously, I guess he can be pretty harsh critic in that sense. Um, is you know, coming back to it, is it a you know, obviously with with kind of with with security selection, you're looking at the the, the balance sheets, you're looking at the future cash flows. With with fund selection, I guess you're looking at people and processes and personalities. Um, do you think uh, that 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 presents something that that makes it more difficult or or not? Yes, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, I mean, the, the two things are different. And when it comes to our third party managers, we we we're looking for partners. And the way we we visualize it is it's essentially people who who are in our team but are sitting in different buildings in different parts of the world. And we are looking for a lot of characteristics. So we're looking for a shared philosophy around how we think about investments, how we think about selecting the investments if, it, if, if it's stocks. We're looking for high-caliber, fundamental, thoughtful, bottom-up research. We're looking for people who are, we think have the right kind of psychological attribute to be managing uh, money for our clients. Um, and in many cases, these are people we've got to know over many, many years. And sometimes it'll take years before we commit even a penny of capital uh, to their funds. Um, and we like to see how they operate in, in different environments. We often go out into the field with them. We see them when they're tired or we see them when they've had a couple of drinks as well. Um, so it's, it's really, it's really is a dating progress and process where we're looking for people who we think we can be partners for a very, very long period of time. And I guess part of the whole challenge with that is, um, you know, the um, assessing, you know, you can look at people's track records um, and then you've got to dis disentangle the effects of luck and versus skill, which is always the challenge. 
you know, from my perspective as, as an allocator as well, it's the constant, you know, have, have the, has this manager or strategy just been favoured by the environment? Um, you know, do you think that, that, that there is that, that overriding temptation to be swayed by performance more so than those kind of qualitative factors that you've outlined? Funnily enough, performance isn't isn't the first thing that that we look at. Um, we are more driven by by process than by by recent outcomes. Reminds me of the there's a famous bit in one of Nassim Taleb's books. I think it was the first one, "The Fool by Randomness," where there's a guy at the he's in a casino and he's at a poker table. He's at a, a blackjack table, and uh, he sees somebody has a you know a king and a a king and a seven and um you know rather than um, sticking he asks for another card and gets you know he asks for another card and gets given a four and uh, the person standing behind him says great call and you know we, we all know <laughs> it's not a great call it's an extremely poor call with a lucky outcome and we're, we're very keen to differentiate between process and outcome. So when it, when it comes back to the managers, we're looking for all of those characteristics which we think will lead to good outcomes over time. But, but, but we understand that it, you know, it won't be the case every year and there could be all kinds of exogenous factors which contribute to, to poor, poor periods of performance. And what tends to happen in the investment industry, as, as you very well know, is that somebody will have a poor run of performance and then they'll be replaced, uh, particularly if there's a consultant involved, they'll be replaced by somebody else who's probably had a good run of performance. And I think it was James Montier, um, when he was at SOCGEN, he, he, he did an, an analysis of UK pension funds and looked at all the managers that they'd fired and all the managers that they'd hired. The ones they fired did a lot better afterwards. So no performance. I mean, it's something that clearly we we keep an eye on, but it's it's not the key driver of an investment decision. I wouldn't say. So uh, taking that on a little bit more, obviously, I can see the criteria you have for getting into a position with with the manager. You know, the the, the trickier, arguably, one then is after a period of tough performance, and maybe the manager still has all of those attributes that you like in terms of characteristics and process um what what would prompt you then to say okay no we've made a mistake here or actually you know this manager isn't as good as we thought um presumably performance can play a part there but but anything else what are the obvious reasons that would prompt you to redeem from a manager well again perhaps it's easy to explain when it talks about the equity managers and it'd be similar to our investment process you know, when we when we buy a stock, we we have a roadmap for that stock. I mean, is the company doing what we expect it to do? Is it, you know, is it investing in the way that we'd expect it to invest? Is it generating the kind of margins? Is it growing? There are a number of metrics that we'd be that we'd be looking at to see if it's staying on on track and and on the road. And and if it is, and the share price comes off, and you know, other things. Being equal, we will add to the to the position. In terms of, of of a manager, again, it'll be: Are they doing the things they should be doing? Are they doing the kind of research which we think is appropriate? Are they buying the kind of stocks which we think are attractive in the portfolio context? Sometimes it almost feels like we can see more value in their portfolios than than that they can see. They can get too close to them; they can't see the woods from from the trees. Particularly when there've been poor periods of performance, they can, you know, there can be some shocked by it, or or, or or whatever happens to be, and they'll be, you know, the world is ending, and we'll be going, gosh, well, that looks like a very interesting collection of stocks. Um, so for us, what, what would worry us the most is if they suddenly change their investment philosophy, and if they suddenly adopt a different approach, and it, it feels very reactive, and it feels like. They're just reacting to recent events, and it would be the same on the systematic funds. Um, you know, if we if we were looking at a, a managed futures player, and they suddenly said, actually, you know, we are no longer a managed futures. We decided we want to be more of a discretionary macro kind of person. I mean, that 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 would be a red light. Yeah. So things that are outside expectations, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
in terms of like how you make decisions within your kind of organization, you know, the whole area of decision making is kind of an interesting one in the whole area in investment management. You know, we talking to some of the other CIOs we've had on, you know, the CIO as the kind of uh, coordinator and leveraging the skills of the, of the whole team. Um, when you're managing portfolios, doing asset allocations, is it by committee? Are there <laughs> many people involved? What, what do you think is a good process okay. for, for, for doing all of that? What was the, what was the famous saying? A camel is a horse designed by committee. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if I, you know, if I go, go back to when I've been sitting on big committees, I mean, they are, they're, they're fabulous sort of optimizers for poor decisions. And, and generally what, what committees do is they, they decide what, I think it's, they agree collectively what nobody believes individually. So they, they come to an outcome which is generally the most suboptimal. And um, in, in investment context, that generally means selling when the market has already gone down. And the reason that happens is, you know, it's all about looking prudent and clients are expecting us to be conservative and they've already lost some money, so let's take some chips off the table. So it all sounds sensible, but it's devastating for returns. I mean, you, you put a very bad number into your compound series and it destroys the whole series, as we know. So I think you should generally, you know, <laughs> sparing the blushes of the other people on your podcast who sit on committees, uh, you should generally avoid <laughs> big committees or, 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 or committees with too many people with the title doctor on, on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so maybe two, three people is is kind of the the right. Well, I would argue four because we four, are okay. we are a beast with four heads. So um, okay. I have two colleagues in London and one one who lives in in Zurich, and the four four of us uh, collectively come to what we hope yes. aren't uh, big committee yeah. decisions. Yeah, I mean you touch on an interesting point there and it's something i think about you know what as you describe it a lot of the things behaviors that you see in markets can often be you know put into the you know the uh, category of prudence and it seems logical seems sensible etc but actually if you do them you'll end up with a pretty terrible outcome from an investment perspective whereas to actually generate good performance over the long term there has to be some level of insight as to, well, actually, no, that's not a good idea because that's not how the markets work. So if you sell after the markets had a big drawdown, that typically won't be a, a great idea, even though it might seem prudent. You know, from your own journey through the markets, you know, do you think these insights have to be just learned from experience? Can you read them? How, how do you pick up kind of key insights like that would help you actually become a better portfolio manager? I think... One of the things I learned is if if what you're doing feels comfortable, it's probably the wrong thing. I mean, if we go back to March 2020 during the pandemic, um, we'd been promising, you know, the, the, the four of us, we'd, we'd, we'd been promising ourselves for a number of years that the next major market drawdown that came along, we'd be buyers of equities, we'd be buyers of risk assets. And we'd even drawn up lists, sort of, we call them the fire drills of you know, what we would buy and where and when. Our, our thinking being it's much easier to figure out what to buy when there's nothing going on on a sort of rainy Monday afternoon than, than when the market's in free fall and the newspaper headlines are horrible. Um, but even, even if you've pre-committed to buying more when the market goes down, it's still, it's still very difficult. It still feels horrible. I mean, you, you buy something, you, you might have owned something at 100, it then goes to 70, and you buy some at 70, and the next day it's at 60, and the day after that it's at 50. So your portfolio is down. Um, you just bought something which is falling, so your portfolio is down even more than it would be otherwise. Your, your, your colleagues and clients are looking at you saying, well, you know, you're not really helping preserve the value of my portfolio here by, by adding to, to, to risk assets. So it's 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 extremely difficult thing to do, and again, um, I, mean, I mentioned psychology and behavioural investing a number of times. I mean, one of the things that we've really really learned is that investing is it's not just a 
a pure science. There's a massive human element to it and there's a massive behavioral element to it. And positioning a portfolio so that you are able to buy things when the market's falling is, is incredibly important. And then actually doing that when the market's falling is even even more so because it feels it feels horrible. Mm. So, I mean, practically, what people can take from that might be one pre-commitment. If you, I mean, devising pre-commitment strategies, I guess. Um, which I guess you can. I mean, you could, for your pension, you can kind of invest every month or whatever, regardless of, of the level of the market, and then you're going to naturally be buying in a dip. But um, outside of that, I mean, how do you need to uh, kind of map out the plan ahead of time that in, in this type of scenario, we will do X, Y, Z? I think it's vital, Alan, because if there's some horrible headline, such as a global pandemic and economy shutting down and the markets in freefall, trying to make sensible, rational decisions on that day when the headlines are so are so horrible is, is extremely difficult. Whereas if you can pull a piece of paper out of the drawer that said, when I was cold and calm and rational, I decided I was going to buy yeah. X, Y, Z shares and add 2% to this and 2% to that. You can, you can, you can pull that out. You can, you know, put the money into the market and you, you can, you can get on with it. Um, so I'd, I'd have thought, I mean, clearly everybody has a different way of investing, but it's worked for us having a plan. I mean, you never follow the plan perfectly and, you know, no, no battles survives a plan, but, uh, having, having a plan is a, is, 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 is a great idea. Everybody has a plan till you're punched in the face. Uh, Mike Tyson, the, yeah, Mike yeah. Tyson line. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. <laughs> yeah, um, interesting. I mean, it that ties very much in with what we what we've heard as well from 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 other uh, guests here. You know, one of the themes has been about kind of how to um, you know the different edges that you have as an investor, and one of them is trying to cultivate a behavioral edge, which I guess this falls into that category of of knowing. And I guess here in this instance, no, the insight is that to be successful, you, you you know it will be difficult to do what's uncomfortable, but, um, and if as much as possible, plan for that and and pre-commit to it. Isn't that it? Yes, I mean it's it's. I mean you can look back and you can think, why don't I? You know, why didn't I buy more of that in in March twenty twenty? It was obviously cheap. But actually, we as the heads of the investment team, we keep a log of our decisions and we write down what we think is happening at the time and our gut feel and what we're really feeling on the day. And when we, it's a sort of secret diary. And when we and when we read that, I mean, firstly, I mean, often often we have no idea what's going to happen next. Yes. So we actually bought some some put options on the euro stocks in February 2020. And I wrote down in our journal that I could see the put options expiring worthless. And that was three weeks before the market collapsed. So I can delude myself that I could see the pandemic coming across the world and I could see the effect it was going to have on global markets. But that's a delusion. Because if if we'd all seen it, the market would have already reacted. I mean, the market is a discounting mechanism. If if the investment community knew that the market was going to fall in March, it wouldn't have fallen in March. It would have fallen at the very point that the investment community knew that the market was going to fall. So we can delude ourselves with these things. And, you know, looking back, oh, we should have added more. Looking at the journal on the day, it was an uncomfortable decision. Yeah, I think you're right. <clears throat> I mean, I've studied behavioral biases but i can't remember if there is a name for that one but it definitely is one that you know at that moment when you make the decision uh, you have all of these pros and cons in your mind fast forward or you know six months later and you think oh that time we bought in march 2020 you know you forget all of the reasons that you had for not buying back then i think i think uh, i think the reason. reason for that and it clearly comes under some category of hindsight but the yeah. the reason for that is that going forward there's an infinite variety of paths and you don't know which one it's going to be i mean the markets could have carried on falling much much further um last year going going looking backwards there's only one path so you've narrowed it down from the infinite number of paths to one path and you know one path is clearly easier to identify um but we've been talking about it you know we've we've talked about it since on on our investment desk. I mean, if, if we'd if we'd had a time machine, or, or if somebody 
had a time machine and had come back to us at the beginning of 2020 and said, you might like to know that in, in a few months' time, there will be this virus that goes across the world and a lot of people will 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 die and uh, the economies will sh be shut down and you'll be told to stay in your home and the world will grind to, uh, to a halt. I think sort of first level thinking would have liquidated all the risk assets or, or, or maybe would have bought some vast amount of uh, protection in the derivatives markets. But the reality is that 2020 was actually a good year for markets. So it could have been, even with, even with perfect foresight of the events, you'd have been able to predict the, the first order event, but you wouldn't necessarily have been able to predict the second order events, which as it turned out was, you know, colossal monetary and fiscal accommodation and all of these different plans about how to spend money on lots of projects and things. And, you know, it, it, it on balance, it appears that the second order effects overwhelmed the first order effects and equities had a good year. So even with foresight, investing isn't easy. Yes. No, it's true. And I mean, as you say, people forget that it, you know, March 23rd, 2020, or whenever the lows were, you know, that the, a big theme in markets then was the impending wave of corporate bank bankruptcies that we were going to expect and you know how some commentators were saying it would be worse than the great depression and uh, all of that's going on in the background but but you know you, you move forward two years and people who, who were fortunate to buy back then have, have kind of forgotten that so uh, as you say just one version of history so again i mean what 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 should investors take from that is it is it a sense of humility a sense of not of knowing that Anything is possible in markets, or, or what would you take from 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 that whole episode? I suppose it's all all you know. I mentioned how, uh, Howard Howard Marks of Oak Tree earlier, the know nothing investor. You know, and for a know nothing investor, he's done pretty well. Let's uh, face it. I think it's about understanding that different things can happen. Understanding that even if we can predict these different things, we can't predict the probabilities. Having proper, a true diversification in a portfolio. So, you know, not thinking that owning equities and high yield bonds gives you a diversified portfolio. Having having not only the diversification, but having things which are going to perform well in some extreme scenarios. So something, you know, obvious examples of put option in a big equity market collapse. Because having something that performs extremely well when other things are performing very badly is gold dust because you can sell the put, you know, go up a lot, you can sell it, you can then use that dry powder to buy your favorite stocks at bargain prices. And I mean, I've had periods in my career when I've wanted to buy equities, but I've had nothing to buy them from. You know, the only way I could buy an equity is by selling another equity, and that's very annoying. So, um, Having things which have their moment uh, of glory when when markets are doing extremely badly is is incredibly valuable because it's it gives you that a double whammy of you know having a currency that that you can spend on on cheap risk assets. Yes, you've touched on a <clears throat> on a few um, different uh, people with with insights, um, Howard Marks, etc. You know, obviously you've had that kind of experience in markets over the last, you know, three decades, whatever it is, that has helped shape your kind of investment approach, your investment thinking. Any kind of um, inspirations or people who have very much shaped your thinking uh, from the things you've read, people you've met, etc.? Well, I have to, I have to own up to have made a couple of pilgrimages to Omaha, in the last few years, there's some some investor based out there who's 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 done pretty well. What was that experience like? Is that <laughs> not, is that just a, a show, or do you do you, do you actually learn much uh, from from the whole hullabaloo that goes with it's it? It's very so. Of course, I'm talking about Warren Warren Buffett and the yeah. the Berkshire Hathaway AGM, which is I mean it's it's an it's a unique thing. Um, most AGMs, you know, sort of. A cup of tea and a biscuit and twenty or thirty bored-looking investors. The, the the Berkshire one um, is done in a gigantic stadium with forty thousand people inside it, with a with a convention center next to it, with a hundred companies exhibiting all of the Berkshire um, companies and the ones that they own big uh, stakes in. 
with thousands of people in there as well and and lots and lots of it's it's very hard to to describe i mean it's it's a sort of uh, it's a bit of a rock concert stroke investment conference stroke sort of moonies convention because there are some sort of berkshire hathaway types um and what's brilliant is just the range of other investors you you meet there there are people um a lot of investors come over from china for example so seeing all these chinese in in the geographic center of americas is quite strange but uh, the Chinese generally admire two things, and that's age and wealth. And you don't get much older or richer than, than <laughs> Warren Buffett, say, or a Charlie Munger even. Um, and you just meet other great investors and really interesting people. And it's a very relaxed and inform informal environment. And you just run into people. Uh, you run into them in the queue, just waiting to get into the convention center. So at six in the morning, there's already a massive queue. And you'll and you'll speak to people from every imaginable background. So yeah, I mean, if if, if uh, any people listening to the podcast haven't been, then uh, go along. I think you have to buy one one book. So, one for the bucket list. But you, you don't have to buy an A share. I think you can you can buy a B share. So you don't have to put ten tens of thousands of dollars down. Interesting how you know one of the things that that strikes me. Obviously, you're, you're impressed by. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger as, as value investors um, and often people who have that mindset are very much, you know, equity value and equity for the long term. But you also have, uh, you know, this uh, respect and interest in, in investing in trend following and which is, you know, some would see that as being maybe the opposite uh, approach of, you know, buying high and selling low. So how do you, you know, as a... What is it about your approach that that allows you to m marry those two very distinct investment approaches uh, and see a place for the two of them in an investment portfolio? Yes, yeah, so we 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 talk about this a lot. I mean, there's you know there's more than one way to cook an egg. I mean, there's lots of different ways of investing, and you know, and a lot of them are extreme extremely different. It doesn't mean that they're right or, or wrong. And you know, we are fascinated by. Any investor who, with a long track record, is doing something interesting and found a different a different insight or or, or a view on the market, and it, it can be fundamental, it can be quantitative. We try to avoid things which you think are just speculative traps. And, you know, there there are some things, and clearly we can be wrong, but there are some things which just look like bubbles to us, and, and we'll avoid those. But aside from that, I mean, if there are people who've been sticking to their knitting and and and, and um, generating good returns in in the different ways, then we think putting them together can be extremely extremely interesting. Interesting, very good. We're coming up towards the hour. We normally wrap up with kind of some final perspectives. Obviously, you've been in the markets uh, a number of years, and you're now managing significant size of assets. What what would your advice be to? people who are, you know, a bit earlier in their career and looking to transition into a head of investment CIO type role, what are the key things you would suggest in terms of things to do, things to read uh, outside of the stuff you've, you've already touched on? Well, it's, you just spoiled, you spot for it for a choice now. Um, mm. I mean, there's so many incredible podcasts now and it, it, people just, just so happy to share what they've learned and you know it can be in every space and you know what Niels has done with all the the the, the top traders is amazing I mean yeah I mean, I mean accessing these these people and getting their wisdom I, I think so listen to as many podcasts but be selective about what you listen to because there are so many of them read as yeah. much as you can read as broadly as you can so so not just stuff that's directly related to to uh, to investments but read broadly be intellectually open understand that you know however however knowledgeable or clever we might think we are we, we know very little really so be be intellectually open and curious as well very good. Sounds like uh, very wise words, very good advice. So Hugo, thank you very much for coming on today. I think that's been a fascinating insight into uh, your approach and into how Rothschild think about uh, asset allocation and, and managing uh, client assets. And with that, I'll pass it back to Niels. 
Thank you so much, Alan and Hugo, for a great conversation where you managed to touch on a lot of interesting topics. I have personally spent time with Hugo over the years, and he really is one of the smartest allocators that I have come across. But what I really like about him and what I think was clear in the conversation today is the practical approach they have to investing and the understanding as to why you choose a certain investment strategy and a manager and that they allow them enough time to perform across a full market cycle. This long-term approach is perhaps inspired by investors like Howard Marks and Warren Buffett and is certainly refreshing to see among institutional investors. And I also found Hugo's view on investment committees pretty interesting. Make sure you go and follow Hugo and Alan's work because, as you can tell from today's conversation, it is so important that you make a plan for how you want to react when the next crisis emerge. From Alan and me, Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.